Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Hey, it's me, Dr. Ward. I'm back from hiding from my COVID hideout. I saw my own shadow and then six more months of COVID. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Weeks, weeks, Ward. That's what I meant. Uh, That is absolutely right that it's weeks and weeks because COVID illness lasts a very long time. As you, you know, Ward, you probably started feeling better, but you, I'm guessing you had lingering symptoms for a while. Well, everyone's a little bit different. So um, people who, obviously people who were put on ventilators and, you know, need lung transplants are sicker, but um, yeah, it can last weeks and weeks and weeks, up to months and months, depends on who you are. What song are you singing? Bamalam this time, by the way, because I, I apologize for that because I, I brought it up in conversation. Uh, For our audience members, what are you singing? What Bamalam song are you singing? Okay, so Ward, you weren't with us a couple journal clubs back, but we discussed the newest monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID, uh, Bamlam Ivimab. And that immediately reminded me of the song by Ram Jam, Black Betty. Which Which, uh, Dr. Josh was not alone, evidently. Yeah, and... And uh, Santosh was just telling me that one of the researchers involved in the study of <laughs> Bamlam Ivimab heard our episode on it 
and couldn't give his press conference because he was too busy laughing at <laughs> whoa <laughs> antibodies bam a lamb <laughs> he had to he had to delay you know like when you because you usually do a call in or something like that for a lot of those <laughs> that's a catchy song uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, we we were having a lot of musical fun with monoclonal antibodies, and we're going to have a lot more fun this week as well, uh, because, guys, it's an alternate week. And you know what alternate weeks mean, I hope. We've been doing this seven years now. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Journal Club. It's time for another... Journal Club! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into this week's Journal Club and Pandemic Update, a couple brief announcements. I'm feeling nostalgic. We can we can do announcements, announcements, announcements. What a horrible <laughs> way to die. What a horrible way to die. Horrible way to start your day and a horrible way to die. Uh, no, excitingly, we as a podcast are now available on Audible. Ooh, so, oh, sweet. Yeah. So for those of you who are, I guess, already listening to us, but want more people to have the joy of our medical immaturity, please rate, review, and recommend. We can be found on even more places now. So we're free on Audible. Go nuts. Yay! Places! In terms of our other exciting news, you may have been wondering why Dr. Ward hasn't been uh, co-hosting with us for a while, and it's because he has been working on his own project. So, uh, Ward, why don't you tell us about that, and then we'll get into the science and stories for this week. Oh, okay, yes. we. Um, so, I am very excited to announce this on the Travel Medicine Podcast. Um, scoop, scoop alert. Uh, mm-hmm. I am hosting a... Uh, episode by episode commentary and review of RuPaul's Drag Race starting with episode one season one and I didn't know how long how far back it goes it goes like into the 2000s like before 2010 I think so we'll give it a modern perspective and you know it's it'll be two LGBTQ um, comedians slash performers just chatting away and giving our perspective on our take on RuPaul's Drag Race. For those of you who have missed Dr. Ward, you can tune in to enjoy his comedic stylings as he talks about fashion and cars. I I don't actually know what Drag Race is about. (laughs) Close. Actually, the first episode did involve a car wash somehow turned into a wet t-shirt and wet pants contest. So use your imaginations. (laughs) <laughs> Working at the car it's... wash, bam, lam, if a man. love friggin' God. All right, all right. <laughs> but so I, Ward... I never got to see the show, and I know it is a cultural revolution. And so I, you know, it's it's weekly. Ward, is that true? Uh, it'll be bi-weekly. It'll be every other week. Oh, that's perfect. So I can actually like keep up. Like if I wanted to do a very first watch through. It wouldn't take a lot of time, like a you know a, an hour out of my week. Correct, and uh, you don't to, even to have watch. to listen. You don't even have to watch the shows. It's we will do an episode by episode guide for you, and kind of just give you the the the, the lowdown. So you'll at next day at the water cooler. Well, it's COVID times, no water coolers anymore. But when <laughs> water coolers come back, you can talk. Next to your day friend. at the water zoomer. At the water zoomer, <laughs> the water you can zoomer. talk about you know uh, Angina's pants or. Um, okay yeah or you know so it'll it'll be more informative if 
I'm able to see it first. But uh, if I don't, that's fine. That's correct. All right. So, nice. Ward, where can we find the show? You can find the show on I. Well, actually, almost every place you can find Travel Medicine Podcast. It'll be on um, iTunes, Stitcher, and um, the. Actually, we haven't settled on a final name yet. We we just. So I think it's going to be called. Um, it's going to be called Drag Race Virgins because I've never seen it before and I'm way behind. <laughs> I'm the forty year old Drag Race Virgin. <laughs> All right, so we will we'll bring updates on how to find the show once it has a name. And in the meantime, let's jump into this week, which is going to be another pandemic update. Surprised? Of course you are. So <laughs> let's yeah. talk a little bit about something that was very exciting initially, is that we're finally starting to see vaccines for COVID roll out. And... Interestingly, the one that was the earliest to get started is also the one suffering from some sloppy science. So we know that the Pfizer vaccine has about 95% efficacy and, or I love this, Pfizer actually said 90% efficacy, then Moderna came back and said 93, and Pfizer said, "Uh uh-uh, just kidding, 95. (laughs) So while those two... While those two are one-upping each other, the third big candidate or company that was developing a COVID vaccine was over in Europe, Oxford AstraZeneca. And they had their own press release that said they were up to about 62 to 70%, which before we heard 90 got everyone super excited. Because for an emergency use authorization, most vaccines need to hit at least 50% efficacy or effectiveness. Mm-hmm. But there's a little bit of problems with, well, there's actually a lot of problems with AstraZeneca's announcement. So I figured we'd go into a couple of these because interestingly, when AstraZeneca made their announcement, their stock shares actually dropped. And an analysis from an investment bank concluded this product will never be licensed in the US. And I'm like, <laughs> interesting. We better investigate. (laughs) And before we say anything else, first of all, none of us have any financial interests or conflicts here, so that's important. Number two, it should be noted that AstraZeneca is licensing their, their vaccine from Oxford University, because this is the Chadox vaccine. So it's actually, you know, conceived overseas in Britain, whereas Moderna and Pfizer uh, are, are both uh, American companies. So there is definitely, uh, on the part of the United States, there's some heavy bias in here. The, okay, the money well, really confuses me because, yeah, like you, like you said, Josh, um, Dr. Josh, the the stock prices dropped, but same didn't didn't the Pfizer CEO immediately sell like a bunch of his own stocks after he well, announced? He did because stock prices went up, so yeah. he sold it off to make a profit. But AstraZeneca's stock price itself didn't go up; it went down. So let's talk about what I'm going to call some potentially sloppy science. Now that doesn't mean that this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine won't be effective at all, but there's some things I think we need to point out about it. So oh, wait a minute, Dr. Josh or Dr. Santosh, maybe y'all can weigh in on this. None hmm. of them have published peer reviewed data yet, right? These are just like media yeah, releases. Is, 
Right, right, right. So they are allowed to release mid or, you know, early trial data. And you're absolutely right that their Oxford AstraZeneca has published phase one and phase two data because they were doing a strictly phase three trial, whereas the previous ones were kind of doing what's called a clustered trial where they were doing phase one and two and three kind of in tandem as the safety data was coming in, which is, I, I don't love the way they did that. All right. But let yeah. me, let's break it down. Cause I think we're going to get lost in some of the, the jargon here. So I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. In short, when Pfizer and Moderna made their announcements, they were aimed to be announcing things based on single, large-scale, phase three clinical trials. Oxford-AstraZeneca's data came out of two separate studies, one in the UK that began in May and another in Brazil that got started at the end of June. And those two studies were substantially different from one another. So they didn't have standardized dosing schemes across the trials, meaning people in Brazil were getting a different dose than people in the United Kingdom. And they also didn't provide the same control injections to uh, the control group. So some people got a placebo, just saline. Other people got a meningococcal vaccine. So the fact that they may have had to combine data from two different trials in order to get a strong enough result to announce their efficacy raises the first red flag, but not the last. We're going to be holding our own drag race here, uh, <laughs> if I'm using that term correctly. I not even a little, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds about right. Based on the one episode I watched. <laughs> so, so... Now, the Food and Drug Administration, which is the overseeing body here in the U.S., does allow for emergency use authorization based on interim analysis, which all three of the vaccines had. But the same document says this must be supported by a minimum level for a single placebo-controlled efficacy trial. A trial. That's what mm -hmm. Pfizer and Moderna did. They released the FDA-approved blueprints for their trials or protocols weeks ahead of time with details on the methods they'd use, the statistics, how they would perform the interim analysis, and that way we could see all their work, check it, and make sure that there were no problems. But the Oxford-AstraZeneca really couldn't come up with either one of those answers on their own, and they only reported, here's the second flag, they only reported on the results for subgroups of people within each trial. So, for example, the subgroups chosen leave out about half the people in the Brazilian trial. Oh, <laughs> oh well, that's a lot. Meanwhile, one of the key claims is that this ended up being a lab error that was also a eureka moment. So a little good, oh, a little yeah. bad. I don't know if you had heard about this, Santosh, but in the AstraZeneca, they made a mistake. So one of the key claims is that they gave a half dose of the vaccine on the first injection, followed by a standard dose on the second one that actually led to better outcomes, but neither trial had been designed to test this hypothesis. <laughs> and this is really, really important. There is such a thing as, uh, you know, the what a trial is designed to look for and something called post hoc analysis. So when you're doing this ad hoc or post hoc analysis, it means that you're taking the data together and then you run an analysis on it 
for which the study was never designed to look for. And the problem with these is if you if you do it a number of times, you will eventually find something that can trick you into saying, oh, we got a positive result or something like that, because you can just pick a bunch of endpoints after your numbers are already gathered. So that is a big, big no-no in research that you cannot just pick up your data and then analyze it for some other type of outcome that you never measured for in the first place. Yeah. So, and it later came out that even though this regime worked of giving a half dose on the first and a larger on the second, Mm -hmm. it was a mistake. So, (laughs) so, and, and let's get into a few harder numbers here. Um, You know, again, there, there's a lot of different regimens in these trials. Like the UK study alone had more than two dozen arms, meaning the volunteers were divided into that many groups according to age and how much of the vaccine would be administered and when it would be administered. Now, the doses of this vaccine were measured by the number of viral particles they contain. And as part of their trial protocols for the UK, the developers decided the standard dose would be five times 10 to the 10th viral particles. But for a lot of the arms in the UK trial, as well as everyone in the Brazilian trial, the information shows that the standard dose in any given particle could be between three and a half to six and a half times 10 to the 10th viral particles. So the lower range of a given vial isn't really that far off from a half dose. So even though they decided on a standard dose, they weren't consistently providing a standard amount in any given vial. And especially if that was a mistake in the protocol, meaning that the sub-investigator, there's going to be one investigator for the entire trial, which is, you know, a person or an institution that's kind of at the head of everything. And then you're going to have a sub-investigator at a particular area or station, and they're going to be responsible for you know, administering the vaccines there, quality control, kinds of these things. And so this kind of failure in chain of communication and all these kind of things, it gives you very, very little confidence in the end results, whatever they may be. And the the problem with it, honestly, more than anything else, is that it's very possible that this is a good vaccine and that it's a workable vaccine, but now you've just drowned away all your credibility by publishing these crap results. And well, okay, again, wait a minute. So I get that. Okay, so it sounds like the dosing has been sloppy. The dosing's not but the, standardized. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the results are not meaningful, right? I mean, if even at a half dose, even at a half dose, let's say with antibiotics, um, even at a half dose antibiotics, sometimes that is a good enough dose for a specific disease entity. You're absolutely right, Ward. And what we're doing here is what we used to do kind of in the early days of Journal Club is really looking at the problems with this study and where they could be corrected. So this is this is how you really this is how we're taught to review scientific literature for those at home. I agree. Um, it's super unusual that they that they didn't standardize the dose. I mean that <laughs> that would be that would be really important when we actually administer it because wait, wait a minute, what dose are we giving? Well, Um, the problem is, uh, according to, and and Josh, this is what you were talking about, some of those 
changes in doses were actually on accident, right? That that wasn't the intention of the actual arm of that trial. Um, is is that correct, or was that one of the other ones a mistake? One one of the other problems. <laughs> there were so many problems. And <laughs> a lot of these, a lot of these were little problems, and it mostly came from if any one of these problems wouldn't have been an issue if it had come out of a single study, right. but AstraZeneca made their announcement based on combined studies. So you take problems from one study and problems from another study, and they exponentially multiply when you're making predictions based on that combined data. So again, a few of the other issues that came up that I noticed. The one for Brazil, the trial in Brazil was aimed first at healthcare workers for who the risk of being exposed to COVID is far higher than just your average Joe Schmo in the UK trial, which tested people across a range of things. Um, Mm -hmm. We mentioned in the UK, they got a meningococcal vaccine in Brazil. They were just given a saline injection for the placebo. So you had different reactions in your control groups. You had entirely different populations who were being studied. In one of the, in the Brazilian study, they didn't even test anybody over 55 who's one of the most susceptible populations to COVID. Then under their section marked interim and primary analysis, the trialists outlined a plan to combine and analyze data from four different clinical trials, only half of which are in phase three, carried out in three different ways on three different continents <laughs> to pull out results from people across these four trials and then pool them together for what's called a meta-analysis. This right. is nice if you're looking at overall patterns and trends. It's a terrible way to determine how effective a newly developed treatment for something is. Yeah, that that's you need to start with raw results. You can't begin. You cannot start with pooling data and then running a meta-analysis before the initial analysis is done. Yeah, that that's because this is uh, this is the definition of garbage in garbage out. You're you're not going to be able to uh, you know read anything from that type of extrapolation. It's not good. And now, that's different from the other trials where I know the Pfizer trials where they have multi centers involved, like they yeah. try, they 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 use the same test protocol, the same mm-hmm. dosages, but on different populations in different countries and different pop, you know, different medical centers where the, this trial was being administered. Yeah. So here's the specifics on those of so again they they intended to combine four trials, but they only reported in this press release. The results from two. So of the two different dosing regimens they reported, one, which was the typo that led to a mistaken half dose followed by a full dose a month later, showed 90% efficacy. And the other was two standard doses, again, a month apart. So at least they kept the timing fairly consistent. But the two standard doses achieved only 62% efficacy. Still good, but not a patch on 90, which means the reports of averaging those trials give it 70% efficacy on average. That's what they reported. That's the big press release. Pfizer 90 or 95, Moderna 93, (laughs) and and AstraZeneca 70. But that 70% is an average of 90% from one group and 62% from another. And the 90% 
could be a coincidence because that was the group that had no one over the age of 55. The 62% had people from multiple age groups. So for all we know, it could just be that younger people responded better and therefore only needed a half dose. Or maybe a half dose followed by a full dose is the best regime. (laughs) So there's so many questions that we don't know. And the demographic difference could be more important than the change to the size of the dose. Yeah, hey, this, maybe this was, maybe they don't need a refrigerator at minus seventy two degrees. Well, <laughs> so, well but that, that's weird. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right about that. If it was just head to head with the Pfizer, but now we have a Moderna vaccine where they have a excellent efficacy in the same type of mRNA vaccine, which does not need extreme refrigeration. So right. you know, they they were already kind of. I I think I know what happened here and it's kind of, it's plain as day that they were behind the eight ball because there were two other companies that had made big splashes and they just wanted to get something out there that showed efficacy. But instead of doing things in kind of a measured, um, straightforward manner, uh, I'm guessing that they pulled a team together to try to compound as much data as they possibly could and then, you know, put it together in this hodgepodge to just kind of slam down into this. And the trouble with this and the, the biggest problem I have is that many people who see the news, they don't read past the headline, right? And this is, you know... Ward, you probably see this a lot, people coming into your ER. I read this in the news. Can you give me the kind of thing? And they haven't read past the headline. Some physicians don't read past the abstract or the headline over there. So all of a sudden, you get this efficacy that's boom, it's it's right there, but it's wrong. It's actually a mishmash, and, and really, it shouldn't be reported that way. I personally put this in the camp of being unethical reporting. It was bad. So again, that is not to say that the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't work or that it's not effective, but this is some really sloppy science pooling all these different trials together for a meta-analysis. Meta is great for jokes, not (laughs) good when you are trying to put out a brand new treatment for a worldwide disease. And that's why I said, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Santosh, that the individual trials were probably run mostly okay, you know, yeah. dosing typos aside, but trying to combine all the different trials into one report just to compete with the press releases from the two other companies at the same time was irresponsible at best and unethical at worst and why i think we really need to watch again the data on all of these vaccines coming out as it's released well to be fair none of these none of these vaccines have been fdva approved yet no but pfizer pfizer and moderna have both submitted or are planning to submit their emergency use authorization soon based on their trial protocols and early safety data which should come out so uh, vulner- not vulnerable populations, but healthcare workers could start seeing, or frontline workers could start seeing these emergency use doses as early as late December, early January. 
Mm -hmm. But as of late November, I think they're still finishing, even Pfizer is still finishing up their phase three trial, right? Correct. They haven't hit the numbers that they need quite yet. Well, they hit the numbers, but they haven't shown, they haven't shown the necessary safety data to get the emergency use authorization. So that's what they have to release is their safety info. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, AstraZeneca is not even there, even behind that at this point, right? Right, but they're they're also in the process of submitting their emergency use paperwork, and they will likely get approved in Europe and Canada. But for the same reasons we've laid out, that's why people said this is this particular vaccine is unlikely to get approved in the U.S. Luckily, we have multiple vaccine candidates, you know, now rapidly all coming down the pipeline. So there's your vaccine update. Uh, let's move on to the next part. One of the more unique symptoms of COVID that has been reported that we haven't really seen with some of the other common cold or flu viruses, or at least not to this degree, is the loss of taste and smell. And that's not something that we normally associate specifically with coronaviruses. I mean, yes, your nose can get stuffed up when you have the common cold, or if you got H1N1, there could be congestion or difficulty breathing. But the actual loss of smell and taste was a real mystery until somebody decided to study it and came up with a very interesting explanation. Or uh, you had the Rona. Did you notice a loss <laughs> of taste? It's it's actually a, it's a weird thing. I'm noticing that people who, in my clinical practice that I've talked to, who've, you know, I've taken care of coronavirus patients, it is not an infrequent symptom. It can show up as almost any symptom, sometimes neurological, sometimes respiratory, sometimes cardiac, sometimes just thrombotic events. and um, the people who've lost taste and smell, in my experience, I've seen them to be on the milder side of symptoms. Like they tend not to be the sicker, sicker patients. Um, the people who are pretty sick, I haven't had them tell me that they've, they haven't been losing, you know, their senses of taste and smell. But I, I obviously haven't seen that, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of people who've been sick. Okay, well, that's, that actually would be another interesting study point to track is to, is while this does tend to be a very good indicator that someone has COVID, if they walk in and say, I can't smell or taste, you can be reasonably certain they have it. I haven't seen many studies indicating any association with severity of disease, but this particular scientist began investigating why people were losing smell. And it looks like the primary source of insult is in the nasal epithelium in specifically the support cells for the nose, the skin-like layer responsible for registering odors. So the support cells and the stem cells, but not the neurons directly. So these support cells are called, I love this word, sustentacular cells, because they're spectacular at sustaining oh. the various organs. <laughs> Webster's dictionary might have a word with them. <laughs> well, these, but Dr. Josh, by the way, I just pulled up a article from UCSD. Um, loss of smell associated it is associated with milder clinical course. Oh, yeah. Well, you learn something new every day. <laughs> well, a lot of this data actually, uh, there were a lot of contributors around the world, but definitely. When you're on, a, when you're on an intub intubated on a respirator, people, can't, you can't oh, say, I can't smell that pizza. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but according to a UCSD study, that's what, what they're what they're reporting. Yeah, and and SD actually contributed quite heavily to this kind of pool of information. So now, makes- devil's devil's advocate here, it could be since we've started studying this that as more people have become aware that a loss of smell indicates COVID, that could be a prompt for them to seek treatment or diagnosis earlier, leading to earlier interventions and therefore milder courses. So there's still a lot to be studied, but that's fascinating that it's associated with milder cases in general. I'd want to know, I would need more data to to draw any long-term conclusions. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's anosmia, one thing to think about, so that this is people who say that the tastes are gone. They just taste like, you know, cardboard or something like that. They just, it has nothing. But there's also parosmia where, uh, you know, for instance, like chocolate tastes a little bit like sweet rubber. And, mm. you know, <laughs> so it, it tastes like it's supposed to, it kind of, but there's a twist on it, meaning that the the taste is not registering properly but it is registering so that's called parosmia there is another worry which is a little bit more long term and it's the kind of thing that we think about with this virus knowing that it has in some patients long term effects on difficulty breathing fatigue all these kind of things we do know that there are neurodegenerative diseases where when you start to have anosmia, for instance, you you start to get worried that just that symptom in and of itself, if it's progressive, that shortly afterwards, there's going to be a neurodegenerative disease, for instance, like Parkinson's. So there you go, Santos. The concern that this could be infecting the neurons, especially given the number of neurological symptoms we've seen with COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, began to not worry, but intrigue Harvard neuroscientist Sandeep Robert Data. Data? I'm going to go with Data. Sandeep (laughs) Data. Data. (laughs) Killjoy. (laughs) But so again, about 80% of people who get COVID-19 are estimated to have some kind of smell disturbance, if not necessarily full loss. And he began to worry that, you know, if this was infecting the olfactory neurons that sense odors, that this could lead to more permanent data. But studies have shown that this is probably not the case. Now, he also did a meta-analysis or a gestalt read of the data. But here, he's not. He's looking at patterns. He's not trying to force conclusions. So it's a little bit different. And let's talk about these sustentacular cells because they provide the metabolic and physical support needed uh, for one to sustain cilia on the olfactory neurons. So cilia are like mm, you can think of them as almost like the little hairs inside your nose. They catch the odor particles and then pass them along conveyor belt style to the neurons, which transport the odor aroma info to your brain. And then you say, hey, that smells. (laughs) But olfactory neurons, which actually carry the information, do not have the ACE2 receptors, which is what allow the virus entry to cells. But sustentacular cells, which are on cilia and support olfactory neurons, do have a bunch of 
ACE2 receptors. So if that balance is disrupted by, say, those cells being infected by COVID, it could lead to a overall shutdown of neuronal signaling. If you can't give information to the neurons, they can't carry it to the brain, and you lose your taste of smell. And, and that can be a sustained symptom rather than just lasting for the time period of just your, your active infection. So that's the worry. Now, a different neuroscientist in France uh, released a study in brain behavior and immunity where he infected the noses of golden Syrian hamsters, which sounds adorable, um, <laughs> with... With SARS-CoV-2. Ferrets and hamsters actually make for really, really good animal models because of the similarities that we share in terms of our immune response to respiratory COVID has been... Lord, science. Science has been tough on cute little animals. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But when these hamsters were infected... After two weeks, not a single olfactory neuron was infected, but the olfactory epithelia and support cells were completely detached, which looked like skin peeling after a sunburn, which meant the hamster, yeah, right, which meant the hamsters couldn't really smell. Um, So it seems to be specific to this specific virus, the COVID, it affects the sustentacular cells and about half of them containing the pathogen. So how long can you expect the sense of smell or the loss of smell to last? Uh, It varies, Mm -hmm. but on the middle end, I'd say the median end, people seem to have smell begin to come back after about three to five months. Yeah, it's it can be a long time. Now, there are others, for instance, Ward, you said you never experienced this particular thing, like your food smelled and tasted fine. That's correct. Yeah. So it is strange to try to figure out which patients will get the symptom and which patients won't. Rates of COVID, when you see it as a presenting symptom, you're absolutely right, Ward, your antenna go way up. Although, to be fair, in 2020, when anyone comes in with anything remotely suspicious, I'm <laughs> like, like it's, doctor, my elbow hurts. <laughs> it's probably COVID. And, and, you know, it's probably, probably COVID. COVID. That does sound like how the ER in my hospital is treating admissions. <laughs> <laughs> this has led to, this loss of smell is leading to some very interesting studies, which I'm not going to go into, but I will just briefly list a course of high dose steroids, which we use for everything lately. Uh, COVID-related, to see if that reduces inflammation and restores smell. A smell training program with essential oils, you know, like we train bomb-sniffing dogs. Beta-carotene and vitamin C supplements for nerve regeneration. Or even irrigation of the sinuses with budesonide, a topical steroid that's been shown to improve some outcomes in people with smell loss for more than six months. So all of these things, this pandemic is spinning out data that we will be studying and making discoveries from for years and years after this, which is great, even if the initiating cause of the research is less so. Yeah. And this is something that we've done as human beings for a really, really long time, right? If we know how to study something, we don't necessarily put 
our energy into it until it becomes an acute problem. This is this is the kind of thing that climate scientists rail on about and say that, oh, you know, it isn't heavily, heavily affecting us. So we aren't pouring money and resources into it, but we might in, you know, 20 years, because this is just human nature. This is what we do. Truth of the matter is, Josh, there was a lot of data, information, there was interest in coronaviruses back 20 years ago when we had SARS kind of up and coming. But because that epidemic in China fizzled and it never made it over here, the funding kind of dried up, the interest in the immunology and the pathology and everything kind of dried up. And unfortunately, the United States never looked back when we were actually on the verge of a vaccine for that. So yeah, I I think it's good to take the lessons out of this. I really, really hope we can keep those lessons for the future, <laughs> for the next big pandemic that comes along. Well, the 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 previous big, big, big pandemic that killed you know millions of people, AIDS, HIV, mm-hmm. that taught us a lot about virology, immunology. I mean, some oh, of the, yeah. I mean, some of our medications are actually from we, we were trying HIV meds on. We were, yeah, COVID and, patients. I will say that, you know, HIV, when when direct-acting antivirals made this bloom, right, this is where we got direct-acting antivirals to actually eradicate hepatitis B and hepatitis C and fully cure these, which previously they were not thought to be curable. They they were just like controllable. So you're right, Ward. We, we can definitely learn lessons from these and keep these, but we have to make an active effort. Which brings us to the next study or topic, and one that everyone's going to be holding close and near and dear to their hearts, which is how long is immunity going to last? If you've been infected, if you get a vaccine, you know, when can I start going out and interacting with other humans again with wild abandon? <laughs> um, I'm going to say yet. next Christmas, but what, what do you think? Ward, not do you have an opinion on this one? I, I do not have an opinion. <laughs> I, although I do know that actually back in the middle of the pandemic, I actually texted Dr. Um, Dr. Santosh about, hey, what is our data? What it, what do we know about people who've been infected and getting reinfected? Mm-hmm. And that was back in, I think that was back in like June or something like that. Sure. And then now we know there's been demonstrated cases using sequencing of the COVID strain that people have been infected by two different strains of COVID-19, indicating that you can catch it once and then catch the same disease, albeit a different strain. So we know it's not a reinfection of the same virus or just reactivation. You can be infected again. Yes. Yeah. So there's about four different strains floating around since this has begun as a result of minor mutations, all of which seem to be equally effective, but not all of which seem to infect with the same severity of symptoms. That's really the only info that I've been able to find uh, on those. But with regards to immunity, for people who are infected and acquire natural immunity, the general consensus seems to be it can last anywhere from three to about six months for the, whichever strain you were infected with. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get reinfected with a different strain, but there is some cross protection. So if you've had the coronavirus, you are likely to be 
at least somewhat protected from catching it again for three to six months. That doesn't mean you should stop washing your hands, social distancing, or masking, but that you are walking around with an extra shield. So you can't really do double-blinded placebo trials for this, obviously. It has to be a... You just have to follow people around, right? But I I don't even well, think we have great vaccine? data on this. No, 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 for natural immunity. For uh, so. so natural immunity, the best thing to do, which we were thinking about very early on, and Josh and I had done a, a great sust- uh, uh, episode on this uh, about the, the common cold uh, study unit in Salisbury in England. There is a way to do volunteer infection. And this is still a a good time-tested way to do things, but we haven't really tried it this time around because the chances of uh, causing a problem, I'll say, um, oh yeah, getting that approved by the IRB. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we don't know enough about this particular virus to do volunteer infection on these. And it's a good study because you don't need a lot of people. You just need a handful of patients, maybe like eight in each arm, like the placebo arm versus the infection arm, in order to get like the kinetics and the immunity and all this kind of thing. But the chances were just too high that you could suffer severe infection and you know people kind of turned tail and said nope we're not going to try this so well in a new study that was just published on november or sorry not even published it was posted november 16th to the preprint database biorxiv mm-hmm. shows <laughs> bioarchive <laughs> no 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 biorxiv no, no it's actually bioarchive <laughs> Take this one from me too, huh, Santosh? <laughs> I mean, archive is so much cooler than this. <laughs> um, yeah. The research dives into the ranks of how different lines of defense change after a COVID-19 infection. So they looked at antibodies which bind to the virus and summon either immune cells to destroy the bug or neutralize it. So you have memory B cells, a kind of white blood cell that remember the virus after an infection clears and help to quickly raise the body's defenses. You have memory T cells, which learns to recognize the virus and dispose of infected cells. And specifically, Uh, And interestingly, to Ward's point about HIV AIDS earlier, the authors looked at T cells called CD8 and CD4, which are a kind of T cell that we follow very closely in the HIV community. Now, the authors looked at all of these cells and antibodies in 185 people who had recovered from COVID-19. A small number of people never really had symptoms, but most of them had mild, non-hospitalized infections. Okay, so these are the the either the asymptomatic or the mild case carriers. They provided a blood sample between six days and eight months after their infections. Overall, they had 38 participants give several blood samples between the time between those time points, one week to eight months. So they could track the immune response through time. And the authors found that Antibodies specific to the spike protein, which is what a lot of our monoclonal antibodies and non-vaccine treatments are looking for, would remain stable for months and begin to wane or go down six to eight months after infection. But at five months post-infection, all the participants still carried antibodies. 
So why am I saying that natural immunity only lasts between three to four months? Well, because the volume of these antibodies differed widely between people with an up to 200-fold difference between people. So antibody counts normally fall after an acute infection. So a drop-off at six to eight months comes as no surprise. But the rate at which those antibodies drop off determines how long you're protected. Some people are going to carry enough antibodies all the way out to six months. Most people will carry it out to at least four. Almost none will take it to eight, which is why you could start seeing reinfections as early as even three to four months out. Yeah, on a per like on a personal, well, on an anecdotal level, I've seen I've had patients who've um, who had it in March, and later on saw me again in like. June or July for something else, and we test them again, and they test positive. So it's really hard to say. Well, the the actual, and this is one of the problems that we have, right? Our current testing modality, the what we're using is the gold standard most of the time, is looking for RNA. So detecting RNA by PCR. And unfortunately, this is not a great way of understanding whether you have activate, uh, actively replicating virus. What, what we'd want to do is actually see how much infective virus you have, meaning that can you actually take a viral culture and see, you know, lay it down on a plate on a monolayer and see how much virus that you get in terms of like the number of plaques or something. But you need a specialized lab for that. And that too, it's very, very difficult to capture and it takes a long time for that assay. So this is the best like surrogate that we have. And the weird thing about it, Ward, is we're fairly sure that, for instance, um, you or me, you know, we test positive, we get sick. And then if I am better 10 or 14 days out, I know almost certainly just with good epidemiological data that I'm no longer infectious. But just like you said, you swab and you test positive three months out, six months out. So how could you be infectious if you still have a positive test? That that tells us that it's not the right test. Not It's not perfect anyway. Oh, no, it's far from perfect. And another point that you bring up, Santosh, is that natural immunity is different than vaccine-generated immunity. So all the stuff I've been saying about, you know, we're looking at as many as six or as few as three months, none of that necessarily carries over to vaccine-generated immunity, and it can't be directly compared because the mechanisms by which vaccines induce immunity, especially with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that's going to be an mRNA-based vaccine that's never been approved before. This is brand new technology, so we know practically nothing about the durability of those responses. We hope for at least a year's worth of immunity from a vaccine, but we simply don't know. And that's going to be a large part of what we're going to see from some of these new data being released from the Pfizer and Moderna trials, and even in what I'll call the phase four trial, the emergency use authorization. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And phase four, you're right, Josh. Phase four is a, a true uh, phase of vaccine testing. It's called the post-marketing or post-labeling uh, trial period. And 
it's really, really important to keep an eye on that data because from time to time, we find that when you put these medications or vaccines into live trials, you know, just out to the public, you find issues with safety or efficacy that you did not discover in the previous one. So it's still important to monitor these results really, really closely. Oh, yeah. There are medications that have been approved that... Uh, a long time ago that we're still, you know, there's still academic academic debates about their efficacy. Um, I'm not going to name them because they're all big, big brand name drugs. But yeah, I mean, it, it, phase four is the, we're going to, it's going to be very interesting to see what the phase four data shows, because right now the, this data is all coming from not peer reviewed sources yet. Right. The, the, the press releases that we're getting right now, you're absolutely yeah. right about that word. It's, um, they're allowed to do it because the data has been reviewed by independent bodies and stuff, but it hasn't undergone the full peer review. So that's, that's it for COVID. Let's end with just at least one fun story. Let's shift over to Coke. No, not cocaine, but mm. Coca-Cola. Mm. What we always tell you is going to rot your teeth and load your body with sugar and calories and possibly cause diabetes and has no nutritional value, but it's a safe and effective first line of treatment for stomach blockages. You know how a bunch the new of campaign? Are you the new campaign? Zors in our stomach. <laughs> are you the new campaign manager for Coca-Cola? <laughs> I mean, oh, if, I like if it. They, if they want to pay me to advertise their ability to clean toilet bowls and stomachs, <laughs> then yes. You see the, the polar bears that show up this time <laughs> of year. And they're doing the whole, like, they slide down. And, roar, 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 and you go. <laughs> this study was... It was just fun. It's an old study. It's nothing terribly new, but every so often it, I'm reminded of it, and I just like looking into it. So researchers looked at a number of studies of using Coca-Cola as a treatment for stomach blockages that have been published over the last 10 years. So this is another meta-analysis, and I know I've been bashing on meta-analysis the entire episode, <laughs> and I continue to quote them, and that's because I'm a giant hypocrite. So well, no, no, it's, it's not fair. I Meta-analyses are the, – the most important thing for a meta-analysis is that you put good data and consistent data in so that the answer that you get on the other side is meaningful. So this this type of meta-analysis here, Josh, where you had a, a large amount of like useful data and then it was compiled, that's a good thing. So these researchers looked at 24 different papers that covered a total of 46 cases of patients who had bezoars, which for those of you who don't read Harry Potter is <laughs> was that in Harry Potter? It was. It's the it's the, uh, the magic thing. Stone. That's no, no. It's, it's it's a magic treatment that cures all poisons. I think it was given to Ron when I, I don't remember enough oh, of my Harry Potter. Well, so wait, enough to in order to cure a poison, you got to take the the rotting, disgusting, like stomach contents <laughs> well a bezoar is a hard mass made up of indigestible parts of fruit and vegetables like cellulose that over time can build up like a little yarn or rubber bands ball in your stomach and cause pain 
And they tend to develop in people who have trouble moving food through their digestive tract, which could be because of gastric surgery. It could be because of uh, horribly uncontrolled diabetes, something called gastroparesis. So that any sort of muscular disorder that slows down your intestinal movement. So in a lot of these people, they can develop basoirs or even you know, other bowel obstructions that could lead to the need to do interventions like endoscopies, or in some cases, even surgery, depending on how much of the tract is blocked. But for exactly half of the patients who tried using Coca-Cola to relieve their stomach woes, the phosphoric and carbonic acid in the soft drink was at just one can. This is not like a case. One can was all that was needed to break down the blockage. Half of the patients could drink one can of Coke and dissolve this buildup, uh, this basoir. <laughs> wait, wait. For 19 of them, the beverage still worked in combination with endoscopy, like lithotripsy or ultrasonic waves. And in only four of those cases, despite endoscopy and coca-cola patients needed surgery to have the obstruction removed based on those numbers coca-cola has a 91 percent success rate <laughs> ward do you um I, I know that there are some er's more than others that get patients who you know they're they're either eating stuff or swallowing stuff that just kind of binds up in their stomach have you seen a few of these uh Yes, uh, but we don't. We actually do use Coca Cola for in the ER, but not for Bazars. Um, if you have a bowel obstruction, do not try to drink Coca Cola yourself. Um, go to the hospital. <laughs> but um, but well, uh, we can we prescribe use... it in a measured. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Go no, uh, okay. we're not doing that. Yeah, but if so, for people with feeding tubes, so people who with you know who don't have functional esophagi, you know, upper tract. Sometimes you put a feeding tube in and they're really narrow. They're like the, the, the size of a big straw and pills and, um, you know, dried up tube feeds sometimes will plug that up. And the magical solution we have is Coca-Cola. And we have ER docs and nurses are notoriously uh, superstitious. We do not like to use anything else. No Pepsi, no Pepsi clear. No. Don't think about it. No tab. <laughs> Rest in peace. Um, no, only regular Coke. For whatever reason, we think Diet Coke just doesn't work as well. And we think, you know, Sprite doesn't work as well. We only use Coca-Cola. <laughs> what about Coke Zero? <laughs> I usually you know. like to drink the Coke Zero myself because it tastes better. <laughs> so, I mean, just drink the Coke Zero and use the Coca-Cola for the, for the uh, tube feed Bazaars. Now, from a from a chemical standpoint, um, the 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 main ingredient that you're looking for that is so insanely acidic here is actually phosphoric acid. You find phosphoric acid in any of these dark sodas. If you look on your Dr. Peppers and a couple of your root beers and that kind of a thing, anywhere where you have that, you have phosphoric acid. I have uh, colleagues of mine in nephrology, in kidney medicine, that hate this stuff because this stuff does a number on your kidneys. And probably later on in life, people who drink Coke all their lives, not just diabetic nephropathy, but this probably 
wrecks them too. But dude, so you're saying it acts fast and phosphuriously? <laughs> it's too fast and too phosphorious. Yeah, yeah. But I <laughs> I can't imagine. Dude, this is stuff that usually it but like before the Coca-Cola thing, all right? It didn't it was a chunk that needed to be surgically removed because stomach acid couldn't break this shit down. I mean, that's some acidity. That's insane. And we're talking about a pH of around 2.6 uh, <laughs> for for stomach acid and like 2.3 for Coca-Cola. Well, do, do you gentlemen ever wonder what it does to the rest of your body? Well, if it can? Uh, yeah, yeah, it cannot be good. If it I don't drink, melt down I the do not drink stone. anything. I do not drink anything I can use to clean toilets or dissolve bezoars. <laughs> and but word for you guys, it, it works really, really well. It seems like it's yeah. I mean, we're not using we're not definitely not using a can of it. You just you just suction suction up a little bit in the syringe, put it yeah. into the tube, wait like half an hour, and then flush it out. That, that's it, insane. Like just a yeah. small volume. You don't need just to a small like. Small volume, yeah. <laughs> You don't it's need pretty to caustic stuff. If this doesn't convince people to please get off of Coca-Cola as a, you know, just a dietary thing, I don't know what will, man. This stuff is destructive. So again, a brief reminder, dissolves tooth enamel would be good potentially as an additional treatment to endoscopy for specifically basoars or hard indigestible obstructions but we are not in any way shape or form encouraging you to use this in place of medical treatment seek your doctor's advice and examination don't just grab a can of rc cola down it and hope for the best i don't know if rc Do works as well dr <laughs> pepper dr pepper does not hold a real medical degree <laughs> Yeah. Nobody I, is keeping tabs on you. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> can we can I we... mean I mean the last thing you want is to have your stomach orange crushed. <laughs> uh, I I've just got seven up more. <laughs> no. All right. All right. I'll stop. Uh, so that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as links to sources used in researching this episode. We are on Audible now, uh, so rate and review us on iTunes, Audible, or wherever you find us. Keep listening for where to find Dr. Ward's new comedy podcast on Drag Race 40-Year-Old Virgin or Title to be Decided. <laughs> but no, that's just me. That's my own self-title. Oh, okay. 40-Year-Old oh, Drag Race Virgin. Um, um, yeah, the final title, TB Decided. Uh, but we'll keep you updated as we love supporting any and all of our friends from the show. And until next time, as always, stay safe. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and if you have the luxury and safety to do so, happy travels. Bye. No, no, no.